0: Basically, I see Torah as uh, more in the category of wisdom than -hmm. in the category of legislation. In fact, uh, Proverbs calls its wisdom Torah. All I could
1: see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went, it blew into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was
0: born again.
1: I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 46, I interview John Walton. We talk about Torah, what it is, what it isn't, and how to interpret it in light of what we know now about the ancient Near East. So, with no further ado, let's get weird. Welcome, and thank you for doing this. Um, I'm excited. Uh, Let's start with uh, your testimony. Uh, Start out just by telling us a little bit um, your background, how you grew up, and how you came to know Christ.
0: Okay, Um, so I grew up in the church in a home where we went to church all the time and where Bible and faith was a big part of our home life uh, as well as our church life. As a result, I learned the Bible early and thoroughly uh, just because I was brought up that way and that provided a background for kind of what I do, what I do today. Yeah. So being yeah. raised in a Christian home I knew about Christianity I knew about the the need for a decision for faith and I made that very very early in my childhood. And then grew up in the church. Uh, so that's it's pretty simple and straightforward.
1: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, no I I, I love that testimony. Um so uh, I guess give us some um, some background as far as you know you mentioned knowing scripture and, and learning it at a very young age, which is awesome. Not everyone has that experience. Even, even people that do grow up in a Christian home don't necessarily, uh, have like a, a, a great grasp of scripture at a young age, you know, um, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home, but, but even then, you know, you kind of just get what you get out of your Sunday school classes. Um, but, uh, I probably, you know, for the, for, for a lot of, for the most part, I would say it's kind of left to my own studies, um, as an adult, um, you know, hopefully you're, you know, you're grounded in a church where you can get some good Bible teachers there. Um, but, uh, you know, you're, you've now written a, a series called the lost world series. So, um, you know, how did you get to, to, to this, you know, space where, where you're now writing and, and teaching, um, as you're doing now?
0: Well, when I got to the point of getting ready to go to college, um, I, I had a love of the Old Testament. I had grown up with that, and uh, but I, I didn't imagine that there was a vocational path that included mm. the Old Testament. Mm. I figured people who were interested in Bible became pastors or missionaries or something like that. And yeah. so I saw no vocational path there. So I figured, well, you know, I'll, I'll just take the vocational testing that they have, you know, in schools and see what it says. And the vocational test said I should be an accountant. And so I went off to college to major in accounting. And with that kind of direction in mind, I can't say I was very passionate about it uh, yeah. or committed to it. It was just I had no other choices. It wasn't really until my junior year that uh, I was thinking about, you know, senior year's coming. I'm going to register for classes. I'm going to be graduating. I'm going to be an accountant. And uh, am I happy about that? And no, no, I wasn't. But I didn't know really what other what else to choose. So by that time, I'd been to enough youth conferences and Bible conferences and whatever uh, that I knew the drill. You know, what are your passions? You know, what's your gift inventory? You know, think through Mm -hmm. uh, those kinds of things. And my immediate thinking was, well, I've always loved Old Testament. I mean, it Old Testament is great, if only there was something to do with Old Testament, but there's yeah. really nothing you could do with Old Testament as a career, unless you're going to teach it or something. Or so. Oh, my. I could teach Old Testament. And <laughs> it had never occurred to me before. That kind of thing was out there. Yeah, I said, oh, I'm going to do that. That's, that's So um, <laughs> I immediately changed direction. Uh, senior year, I took Hebrew and Greek and then it's, it's kind of in all, all that direction. I didn't get interested in the ancient Near East until a little further along in the process. Um, I was introduced to it in my master's level, but not very much. And it wasn't until my PhD that I started to see how significant mm. ancient Near Eastern backgrounds could be for interpreting scripture. And so that's the direction I chose. I did a lot of Ancient Near East in my PhD program, I did the languages that I needed to do. And uh, then I did my dissertation on the Tower of Babel, uh, trying to understand it both exegetically, as well as against its ancient Near Eastern background. Mm, And in that that process, I found out how difficult it was to get to the ancient Near Eastern material.
1: Mm.
0: So as I came out of that program, I sort of embarked on a on a career journey of trying to understand the ancient Near Eastern better to make it accessible to the church and understandable to the church so mm-hmm. that the church could see its significance. And of course, that's what I've spent a lot of my career doing.
1: Wow. Yeah, so cool. Um, so when you say ancient Near East, for someone that's it's unfamiliar, um, what are the, the resources and mechanisms that have given us this new understanding of the ancient Near East that, that we have now?
0: Great. Good question. Uh, By ancient Near East, I'm talking about the period of history uh, from before Alexander, Persian period and back. That includes the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Egyptians, all of those cultures prior to the middle of the first millennium. So prior to Mm -hmm. about 500 or 400 BC. Yeah. Uh, so it's that time period. And uh, those cultures, of course, each have their own histories and their own languages. Um, our primary resource for understanding the ancient Near East uh, is found in cuneiform texts. Uh, that includes Sumerian and Akkadian, for the most part, but also um, extends into Hittite and Ugaritic texts, um, which lots of people won't have heard of, and that's fine. Um, but, uh, but the cuneiform texts from Babylon and Assyria, from ancient Sumer, uh, we're talking about over a million texts uh, from oh, wow. the ancient world, wow. contemporary with the Old Testament period. And wow. these texts then give us uh, windows to try to understand how people thought in the ancient world. Mm. Uh, And that's really their significance. Uh, Some people sometimes get confused and think that I'm trying to bring uh, mythological material into the Bible. And that's not the point at all. The point is the Israelites lived in a cultural context. And they thought like the people around them, except in those instances where God led them to something different. And that's fine. But he didn't change a lot of it. (laughs) And therefore, we can understand Kind of the world in which they lived, the world in which they existed, the way that they thought about things, we can understand that better by getting resources that open up windows to that world. And that's what those texts give us.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, I mean, I think most people that are listening are are familiar with reading scripture within its context. In this case, you know, it sounds like we have a, a, a vast, you know, resource of, you know, materials to garner that context from. When did this, these texts become available to, to scholars like yourself?
0: Good, well, the texts uh, began being unearthed primarily in the 19th century. And of course, have continued all the way through till now. Mm. Uh, they, the languages, Akkadian particularly and Sumerian were deciphered in the late 19th century and then, of course, texts had to be translated and interpreted and analyzed and compiled and synthesized and all of those things. And so as a result, uh, those the, the results of so much of that only started to become really significantly available in the middle of the 20th century. So mm. it's really not so long wow. ago. Um, and yeah. of course, it all, it all continues to develop. It all continues to be understood better and to become informed as people analyze those texts and think more deeply about them.
1: Yeah, that's great. So it's relatively new. Um, How many scholars like yourself are really working in this field of studying these ancient Near Eastern texts in in, in the context of, of Christianity?
0: Right. Well, see, there's the, that's the hitch. Um, most of the people who study this material are would be called Assyriologists, uh, or Sumerologists, or Egyptologists, yeah. and their interest is is not in the Bible. Their interest is in those languages, and those texts, and those cultures, and they do a lot of important work that I depend on. Yeah. Uh, and so you have that group of people, and certainly there are hundreds of people probably, uh, you know, in, yeah, I wouldn't say thousands. I would say hundreds recognizing that maybe it's more than a thousand and and above, but people in those kinds of fields. Um, But most of them are not interested in the Bible one way or the other, uh, either helping it out or clarifying it or just ignoring it altogether. Uh, So... uh, so there's a much smaller group that is trained in those things, like I am, um, rather than being someone who just reads about it, but that's trained in those languages and that history, and that are interested in working on clarifying the Bible. There, I think you're down to dozens. Uh, I'd be hard put to come up with a hundred. Although mm-hmm. maybe people are out there that I don't know, um, sure, yeah. might be working on that. Um, but again, we all do it in, in our own individual ways, whatever people are inclined to do. Uh, some of those people who have the training and are interested in the Bible still spend lots of their time just in the texts and in the cultures,
1: right. Don't yeah.
0: really, they're not involved in trying to bring it to the, the people in the church pews,
1: yeah. Yeah, I ask because I don't believe, I mean, maybe before, you know, reading some of Dina's work, Dina Dies, I don't know if I've ever really kind of come across a whole lot that's, that's, you know, fully focused on kind of, and, and what you've done with the Lost World Series, I think it's great because you've taken just aspects of, of our Bible and then really looking at it through this lens and um, I've only just heard just bits and pieces reference here in regard to you know one one topic, um, or other just, but not reading like a a text or a book or even a series like you've written, just kind of dedicated um, on that. So I, I think it's 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 refreshing, um, and I think for a lot of people that are listening that will go out and ho- hopefully you know check out some of your your work, like myself, have found that it's once you start looking at the Bible through this lens, through the, uh, you know, ancient Near Eastern um, context, you come up with some, some drastically different ways of, of viewing the scripture, and so I think there's, for me, um, you know, it, it, there's kind of a bit of a, a dis, disequilibrium, you know, uh, you know, kind of like relearning what you've been taught, um, but I think it's, it's, it's really helpful. And um, so I think, why don't we start talking about your your Lost World series? I mean, how did you um, start writing this series? And when you wrote it, um, did you know it was gonna be as long of a series as you have now with five?
0: Uh, Excellent. Um, Before I mention that, um, you know, besides the Lost World series, which is fairly targeted, each Lost World volume is targeted to a specific issue. Uh, There are a couple general works that maybe your audience would be interested in. Uh, The first one I did was the IVP Bible Background Commentary on the Old Testament. Mm. And that was IVP. uh, And one volume goes through the whole Old Testament, gives that kind of background information. Yeah. Uh, My second foray was to do something more extensive. And with Zondervan, I did a five-volume Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. Uh, With that one, I had 30 contributors uh, who all helped develop that. Uh, The power of that one is that it's got over 2,000 pictures and photos that are really part of that background information. And then most recently, I was a general editor uh, on the Old Testament side for the Cultural Background Study Bible. Uh, That's available in NIV and NRSV and NKJV. And nice. that brings all of the cultural and background information into the study notes of a Bible. Wow. So that's that's three places where people in the church can get a hold of it very easily.
1: Yeah,
0: and uh, and have a uh, have a resource to use. Yeah. Now, awesome. in terms of the Lost World series, um, so uh, Genesis one was the first one. Lost World of Genesis one. Uh, And it really came about in the late 1990s. At that time, I was teaching at Moody Bible Institute, and I was teaching a class on Genesis. And um, for decades, ever since my graduate work, I had been thinking about Genesis, thinking about the ancient Near East, trying to put things together, trying to understand Genesis 1 better. Uh, I was raised in a young earth context and uh, hadn't found... um, Hadn't found any exegetical, hermeneutical approach that allowed me to move away from that, though I felt like I was missing something. Yeah. And it was in the middle of teaching a class on Genesis 1 uh, that uh, all the pieces kind of fell into place. Uh, mm. Last turn of the Rubik's Cube, you know, and the, everything. Yeah. Everyth- and um, I started to realize that what happened was I was asking the wrong question. Uh, Hmm. Instead of trying to see how the Bible meshes into our science, I should have been asking, what kind of creation account is this? Yeah, That led me to a very different approach, and we can talk about that more later if you'd like to, but I know your focus is on a different book right now. But that led me to develop that approach and that interpretation into the book, which is now Lost World of Genesis 1. At that point, I had no intention of writing a series. Um, as a matter of fact, I didn't even come up with the title Lost World. The publishers came up with that. And frankly, I was a bit skeptical when they did. I thought, you're not going to put dinosaurs on the cover, are you? I mean, I'm right. not sure. And they said, trust us, this is a good title. And it turns out they were right. Of course, they, they, they know their stuff. So yeah. it became the Lost World of Genesis 1. At that point, I didn't intend to write any more. Um, that was based on some... Uh, fresh insights that I had based on pulling together the ancient Near East and a close reading of the Hebrew text and all of these things and dealing with Bible and science questions. But um, when the book did well, as well as academic books do, but (laughs) when the book did well, um, they said, well, why don't you do a lost world of Genesis 2 and 3? And my immediate response was, well, if I felt like I had anything to say, I could do that, but I guess I should figure it out first And I don't know that I have. So several years went by, um, uh, but eventually we did do a Lost World of Adam and Eve. Uh, In the meantime, we did Lost World of Scripture, uh, which was trying to uh, think about the uh, composition and compilation of the Old Testament with an understanding that most transmission of materials in the ancient world was oral that is they lived in a hearing dominant world and so we wanted to explore what's the significance of that that lost world of hearing dominance how does that affect how we think about getting scripture so then adam and eve was the third one and with each one i was saying this is the last lost world book i'm going to do um, i don't see any reason to extend this i you know sometimes series kind of extend beyond their usefulness and right. they start saying, okay now they're just trying to you know Get get the franchise going, but I never felt that way about it. I kept saying, "No, it's my last one." Um, but then, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, then, uh, I ended up working on one with my son, the uh, Lost World of the Israelite Conquest, mm. and that came out of a lot of research he was doing. And mm. so we pooled our resources. And we did that book together again. At first, we were writing that book without thinking that it was a lost world book, we were just writing that book. Yeah. About halfway through, we said, Oh, this is a lost world book. Okay, you know, and so, so we did that one together. Oh. Uh, then, uh, I got thinking about what we call the law, what I call the Torah, which we're going to be talking about today. And it seemed like there was an awful lot that needed to be clarified with that. And so I ended up doing that one. I was going to do that one myself, but I ended up depending on my son's help so much that that ended up being co-authored as well with myself and my son. And then people had been asking ever since we did Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3, well, what about the flood? You really need to do the flood. Mm. And it was finally my friend, Trimper Longman, who said, come on, John, we need to do the flood. I'll help you do it. We'll do it together. And so I said, okay. And so we did Lost World of the Flood uh, with uh, Trumper Longman and myself. Um, And again, at each step, each one, I would say, this is the last one. I'm not going to keep doing Lost World books. And But now I've got another one that's contracted. And number seven is going to be the Lost World of Prophecy, Prophets, and Apocalyptic. Oh, cool. Wow. Um, And in my mind, that's the last one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We'll we'll see, huh? Well, that's. Do you have any idea like when that uh, will be releasing?
0: Uh, It's the one that I'm just starting to write now, but I'm just organizing it. Um, But I would expect that I'll write it in about a year, uh, over about a year, and then it'll come out maybe a year after that. So yeah, awesome. Probably talking about 2023, maybe
1: 2024. Sure. Oh, wow. Well, that sounds great. Um, it's fantastic. So I did have some questions as I was, you know, reading through this book, you might've referenced, um, maybe the fourth in the series, the the Canaanite conquest. And so I might have some questions towards the end of the the gist of that, but I, after reading this, you know, I thought I'll definitely have to go back and, and read that one, but I wanted to, to do an episode on, lost world of the Torah because that was what really intrigued me the, the most whenever I had listened to some of your your lost world conference uh, and I can put links to that and of course to your um, you know your books in uh, the show notes for people that are interested in, in, in getting their hands on some of these resources um, but uh, but yeah what drew me in so much is that it actually had, it had done a, some episodes um, on Genesis 1. And, and talked about Adam and Eve, really kind of some of the same conclusions that, that you had in, in your books. Um, this was a uh, Joshua Swamias, We did a, a, an episode where we kind of talked about um, those that lived outside the garden and the possibility of Adam and Eve not being the 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 first two you know humans ever made. Um, so anyway, so here we are, and we're going to talk about uh, the lost world of the Torah uh, today. So. Uh why don't we start with, and you mentioned uh, Torah, law, right? Um, so just we, maybe let's start there, which is kind of some definitions for those that maybe aren't super familiar. What do we mean by law and, and Torah?
0: Okay. So Torah, of course, is the Hebrew word. And uh, many times it's translated law, although it's translated numerous other things as well. Hmm. For instance, instruction. And I think that's really its core meaning. Hmm. It's often translated law, so that's how people encounter it. Yeah. But in our modern world, when people say law, they think about law as it is in our country, in our world today. And so they think about legislation, they think about Congress, they think about the Supreme Court, they think about, you know, laws being inaugurated, and then the, the a culture that's driven by formal, written law. Hmm. And so when we hear the word law, we've got all of those things in our backpack. You know, that's the (laughs) hidden baggage that we have uh, that we assume. And so it's easy then, as you can imagine, that when we read about law in the Old Testament, we think the same thing. We think that it's legislation and we think that it's uh, legal code and we think of all of those things and we treat it that way and we interpret it as if it is God's legal code. Yeah. And as God's legal code, well, this must be then the ideal. And therefore what we should all live by, I mean, why should it change? Yet we know that everything we read in the Pentateuch that is a legal provision isn't something we do today. <laughs> Uh, And so so Christians over time have struggled with that. Certainly there are things we're not going to include, but it certainly seems there are things we should include. And so how do we navigate to that? And my approach is to say, well, we navigate it, first of all, by pushing off the table, that whole idea of legislation. Mm
1: -hmm. There
0: was no such thing in the ancient world. There was Mm -hmm. no legal, formal code, There was no legislation. There was no legislative body. That's just not how things worked in the ancient world. And in fact, things never worked that way until relatively recently. Uh, I haven't done the history work, but I've read the history work and all of that. And I refer to it in the footnotes in my book. But so we have to start by just getting rid of that idea. That's not what these lists of legal sayings are. It's not legislation. And then, of course, we have to talk about what it is. But that's why I prefer not to use the word law, because law has baggage. Law is is pregnant with our cultural ideas, and those only get in the way. So push that off the table, and then start from scratch. What is Torah? Okay, and that's, that's the approach I take in the book, and then I follow the ramifications of it. Basically, I see Torah as... Uh, more in the category of wisdom than Mm. in the category of legislation. In fact, uh, Proverbs calls its wisdom Torah. And Deuteronomy, it calls the Torah wisdom.
1: So Mm. we have it on
0: both sides. And uh, as wisdom, it's a different category. Um, Certainly people feel obliged to act wisely. But it's yeah. a different sort of obligation than what law carries.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And
0: again, there's important distinctions to be drawn.
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. Um, when I heard your Lost World Conference presentation on this, it just sort of hit me upside the head because <laughs> you described exactly my understanding of, of law. And I never really thought about it until you pointed it out. But I think that's probably how most people read it. And, and you said, you know, we can't really help it. We have our own concept of what law is. So when we read the word law, we just read, you know, what we know about that into the text. And it certainly does sort of, it it really hit home to me what you were saying, because there's always this grip of what you're saying as far as, well, if it is law, then, you know, once you really get into, you know, the the, the muck of it, you, you, you it, it becomes really kind of confusing as far as, well, what, what is applicable, what's not. So I kind of want to get in, get into all that, uh, today. Um, so you, you mentioned instruction, wisdom, um, what was the, the purpose of God giving Torah?
0: God's purpose in giving Torah was to help Israel know how they should conduct themselves as people in a covenant with him who want to give honor to his name mm. and who have him living among them. They obviously don't want to offend him. They don't want to violate or corrupt uh, the place where he He lives, the temple, the tabernacle among yeah. them. And so this is God's wisdom giving examples, mm. not a comprehensive expression but examples of what wisdom would look like Hmm. but the important thing is as you saw in the book is that that wisdom is is conditioned it's conditioned by the ancient world it's conditioned by the covenant relationship and it's conditioned by the idea that it's connected to him living in their midst and of course Hmm. all of those things are not true of us today
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it really does make so much sense because when you look at it as being comprehensive and you start reading it as, well, if I'm in this situation, I need to do this um, like, like a stringent law like, like we have today. But of course, as you mentioned, it's difficult to do that because we're so far removed from, from that world. Uh, so how does the law apply to us today?
0: Well, in the, in the sense I've described, it's something that's descriptive mm. rather than prescriptive. We think of laws mm. as prescriptive. And, <clears throat> excuse me, it, it um, had a level of um, obligation for Israel, but as I mentioned, the obligation of wisdom, not the obligation of legislation.
1: Mm.
0: So as a descriptive document, Uh, it can help us understand wisdom. And some of those aspects of wisdom will make sense in our world. Some of them won't. Sure. Uh, And so, but we can start to think about what sorts of categories, what sorts of issues when we think about being wise today and honoring God's name and being his people different way, of course, new covenant and all of that, um, how can we think about what we should do to be God's people and honor his name? So in that sense, they stand as as descriptive illustrations, even though they're situated and conditioned uh, by their own context.
1: Sure. Yeah, I love that. And I think it would be helpful and, you know, towards maybe the end of our interview, I'd like to maybe look at some of those specific examples to kind of look at it through that lens. Uh, to help people kind of know how to, you know, exactly read, read in this way as they're going through, because there's, there's definitely certain some, some things that kind of make you scratch your head. Um, and, and you definitely go through that in the book. Um, a lot of what I've heard, uh, you know, like prior, you know, to, to, to reading this material and thinking this way, I've always been taught that we need to distinguish between the ceremonial and the moral law as far as how it applies to us today. So I've heard, oh, well, you know, because we don't have the temple and you know all these, these these ceremonial laws, they don't really apply to us, but as far as the moral law, it does. So um, how, how would you, I guess, respond to that concept of distinguishing between a ceremonial and a moral law?
0: I would say we really can't do so, and Israel never did so. Mm. Uh, for them, they're all part of the covenant, and yeah. every bit is just as important as every other bit. And um, certainly some of the legal sayings um, pertain to ritual and some of them pertain to a category that we call moral, although Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that they would use that such categories. Um, But uh, these were all part of their covenant uh, with Yahweh, and they wouldn't have seen any different weight among any of them. Yeah. there's they don't distinguish in these categories, and mm. therefore, any attempt we make to distinguish, we're imposing a system mm. that's our system and it's already based on what we believe morality is. Sure, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's how that's how we decide t- typically. So, we yeah. say, Okay, I'm going to do the moral stuff. What's the moral stuff? Well, it's this and this and this and this. How do you know that's the moral stuff? Well, because that fits our categories of the moral sure.
1: Yeah. And it,
0: things that we don't feel necessarily obliged to carry out, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, having sex with a menstruating woman, uh, we just push aside and say, oh, that's pro- that's a ritual thing. And we just mm-hmm. discard the things that you know don't appeal to us. So it ends up being our morality, not the texts.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's so true because that's the natural next question. Once you make that distinction, it's like, okay, well, then we have to now put everything into one of those two categories. Is it ceremonial? Is it moral? In other words, does this apply to me or does it not? And then of course you can just kind of pick and choose what, what you want uh, t- to go where. So um, that's such a good point because you read the scripture that, that system is something that we're imposing. It's it's there's nowhere in there saying, Oh, here's all the ceremonial, here's all the moral. Um, and the so I think that's helpful
0: the foundation of my approach is we want to read the text the way an Israelite read it. We are not Israelites. And before, beyond that, we're Christians. We're not in that covenant. We have our own covenant. But if we want to read the text and understand it, we need to read it the way they would have understood it. And that's that's the whole basis of my approach.
1: Mm, yeah, I love that. Uh, so you said something, maybe towards the end of your book, that I just never really thought of, and I wanted some clarity on because we read all sorts of different stories and we derive, you know, morality from that. Uh, and you had a few different examples. I'll just use one. So, um, well, let me try use an easy one. You, you mentioned um, when, when Jesus did the, the miracle of feeding the five thousand. We see a boy who had the the two fish and the five loaves and. He volunteered to to share that right, and so you, you talk about how it's it's easy to draw um, a moral lesson there, a, a, a principle, an ethic to say, well, we ought to share our, our things. Is that a right way of of reading the, the text?
0: I don't believe that it is. Uh, it's not that it often leads you astray; mm-hmm. it just opens up doors that you don't want to follow in Mm. other words if you accept that approach you have to accept it everywhere and Mm. that can lead to lots of problems Uh, so the idea that uh, narratives whether they're in Samuel or whether they're in the gospels that narratives are there to provide us with role models Mm. or behavioral objectives uh, I think does not Uh, honor, respect, what the biblical author is doing. Mm. Jesus wasn't trying to give a lesson about sharing lunch. Jesus was trying to give the idea that he is God. And he fed the multitude. He provided food and even foreshadowed the messianic feast. There's a lot going on there that has nothing to do with that little boy sharing his lunch. And so uh, what happens is, While there's nothing wrong with saying, gee, we ought to be people who share, fine. But if that's your story, you've missed all the things that are really there.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The lesson about sharing does not carry authority if that's not what the author is doing it for. Right? We need to track with the author's intentions and focus. And if the author's not giving a lesson on sharing, then when we make it a lesson on sharing... We're following our own curriculum rather yeah. than acting with the author. And even though we might not be saying something wrong, we are going off in our own direction and therefore missing what it is that the author is doing, which is the thing that has authority. Yeah. And we do the same thing. I mean, that's with narrative, but we do the same thing if we're doing that with Legal sayings, we do the same thing. If we're doing it with Psalms or with Proverbs, uh, we need to track with the authors and not go off and do our own thing because the text has authority. We do not.
1: Yeah. That's I, honestly, that is a hard pill to swallow because I read that and I'm thinking, how many sermons have I heard where we're reading a narrative? And we, of course, want application. I mean, that's, you know, so much of what we're looking for in a sermon is say, okay, how does this apply to us? And so it's so easy to say, well, let's look what, what they did. Therefore, there's a principle being taught that we should be able to do those same things. Um, and it fits, you know, in isolation, you're right. It, it, you know, we can look at it and sure, you know, there's, you know, there's, I don't think anything wrong with, with teaching a principle based on text, but if you, if you, apply that as like a hermeneutic across the board, it becomes really difficult. I remember when I was reading, um, you know, I was probably younger and you know, I was maybe reading through Genesis again and, you know, you get to, to Jacob and he's having, uh, you know, children with four different women. And so I remember asking, you know, one of my pastors, you know, what, what's, what's going on here? Because it's, if you're kind of taking that hermeneutic, then you can easily derive some, some misunderstandings. And that's kind of what I want to get into here in a second Um, But I see that often done with with children's story Bibles. I have a four-year-old and we have like a, you know, a stack of these children's story Bibles and almost every last one of them, they're all just the narratives and you read a story and all of them have, they want to wrap, you know, wrap it up, tie it up in a nice little bow, a lesson. Here's, here's what we want to catch from this. And sometimes um, I, I do, I do feel like it robs, you know, my, my child of what's really being said. Cause so many times I'll read that story and it'll, it'll dumb it down and say, okay, we need to share our things. And I'm thinking, wait, this is, you know, there's, there's so much that's being said here that I, I hate to funnel it down to this one idea we're missing, uh, you know, so much. Um,
0: so the book that you want to get that I did with my wife, uh, it's called the Bible story handbook. Mm. And it talks about this idea of how narrative works and why do we Mm. have Bible stories and what do we do with Bible stories? And then it goes through 175 Bible stories. It doesn't Mm. tell the story, but it says, what is the text? What is the author doing with this story? And how is it communicating? And what's it talking about? And therefore, what should we be doing with it? And what shouldn't we be doing with it? Uh, All in one spread. Each story has one spread. And go through Old Testament and New Testament to help refocus. What should we be doing with this? Another book that you will find helpful when it finally comes out um, is I've just submitted a book, which I'm calling, I don't know what the publishers will call it (laughs) eventually, but what I'm calling best practices for faithful interpretation. Mm. And in that one, I go through this whole methodology of uh, tracking with the author and focusing on what the author is doing literarily, culturally, historically, theologically, and how that should um, give us better focus on what we need to do with a biblical passage. And we talk about, in that book, I mean, I talk about the Torah, I talk about prophecy, I talk about narrative, and and talk about how, how we tend to do certain things, and we need to rethink all of that and make sure we focus on Thinking alongside of the author. So I refer to, um, uh, if I use the term interpretation in a very narrow way, uh, to talk about interpretation, meaning trying to understand what the author intended to say, right? That's a little narrow, but uh, we can call that interpretation. Um, And to me, that's always the first step. But then the second step is certainly we want to appropriate that message, that message, not our own, not something we made up, we want to appropriate that message to our world and our situation, and our church and our lives. Yeah. But then, thirdly, we want to apply. An application says, "So, what do I do now? What do I do with what I've appropriated from the biblical message, based on the interpretation that I had?" So, when you talk about, you know, certainly a pastor, often has the main job of doing yeah. appropriation and application. Yeah. Uh, they often don't have an opportunity to, to show the interpretation uh, to their congregation, but they ought to be doing it and their appropriation and application should be based on that. But, but even pastors are not always trained that way.
1: Yeah. No, it's, it's sort of, it's a different way um, of looking at it, but uh, yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And we're so ingrained to reading the Bible that way. That was one aspect of your book that just really hit me upside the head because, you know, I realized that, that you know, for the you know majority of my life, that's how I've always been taught, um, and therefore myself have looked at the text. Um, so I'd like to kind of get into some of the more nitty-gritty, like I, like I was talking about, looking at some specific examples in Torah, where we're looking at some things that may make us scratch our head. Um, so there's obviously a, a lot of law that speak to slavery. So people, you know, there's all sorts of different ways that people in, interpret, um, you know, that when we look at Torah, um, but, you know, do, does Torah condone slavery, and, and how should we look at these passages that, that talk about uh, slavery uh, in the Torah?
0: Okay. So, uh, first of all, like law, which has a lot of baggage that we assume when we use the word, slavery has a lot of baggage that we assume when we use the word. Sure. So, when sure. we talk about slavery, we talk about the removal of personhood. We talk about the um, the racial issues, we talk about the Civil War, and uh, we mm. talk about slavery as our country in most recent history has experienced it. Yeah. That's generally not what slavery was in the ancient world. So again, first of all, we have to think about what, what a slave was and what slavery meant and what it was used for in the ancient world. Uh, when Israelites had Israelite slaves, that was part of a debt structure system. In that world, lots of people were growing their own food, and therefore, they were living year to year. And Mm -hmm. therefore, if there was one year, or God forbid, two or three bad years, uh, then suddenly they had no seed crop, they had no crops, and they couldn't feed themselves. And Mm -hmm. so they needed an out, and debt slavery was an out. It didn't depersonalize them, or it didn't make them less a person. Yeah. Uh, any more than having credit card debt makes us less of people. Sure. It's just an economic solution for a problem uh, yeah. that's built into the system. So hmm. Israelites having Israelite slaves, it was it was part of their economy that actually provided a safety net for people uh, who found themselves unable to grow enough food to feed themselves. Uh, so that's that's one perspective. We have to think again about the terminology and the institution as it existed back then. Yeah. Certainly, of course, they also had slaves that were captured in battle. And that's another thing to talk about. But we don't have to get into all of that. Uh, still, it's not the same thing as our modern concepts of slavery. Secondly, and just as importantly, is that we have to remember that Torah is not giving universal guidelines for every culture for an ideal society. It's speaking into an Israelite society in its ancient context. And it reflects the way people lived and thought back then. It doesn't reflect our sensibilities about anything. And so we shouldn't expect it to match up to our sensibilities, because then we're treating it as sort of God's ideal. It's not Mm. God's ideal. It's God's accommodation Mm. of them living in their time. Mm. After all, Mm. we would have a lot of sensibilities today about slaughtering animals and spreading their blood, right? For a sacrifice.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah.
0: That was pretty major thing back then. And it was not something that they had any hesitation about doing. And God worked within their system. So in Torah, Torah, God is not giving an ideal social structure or ideal shape of society. Mm. He's telling them how they should live in their world, in their covenant, with their sensibilities. Mm. So we, we can't criticize them for that uh, because culture then was what it was. Yeah. And culture changes radically. Yeah. So those are the two things, the definition of slavery and what the Torah is and is not.
1: Yeah, I think that that's really helpful because um, otherwise we can read it as the ideal and therefore we, we need to put ourselves in that position and you can kind of come to some, 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 some wild uh, conclusions. Um, God was not not trying to change their society.
0: He was trying to change how they reflected his honor in their lives and in their society. Hmm. He did not try to change their society. Hmm. No society is perfect. Therefore, there cannot be an ideal society because no society is perfect. That's because people Hmm. make it up. And... So 50 years from now, people will have a lot different series of sensibilities than what we have. Yeah. Yeah,
1: that's that's so helpful. That that's such a good point because um we, we read it in, in that way. You know, God may, has a, a marriage covenant, he, he calls the people unto himself, and we see that we, we sort of think of it um you know, they're, they you know, me- meant to be holy, right? As he is holy. So we, 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 we've sort of define that to mean um, ideal. So um, I don't know, maybe, can you, can you speak to that, that concept of being set apart and being holy? And, you know, how is that distinct from, from, from being ideal?
0: Right. So when we use the term holy, modern times, in our churches and things of that. of course, they don't use it outside the churches. Uh, But in our churches, when we use it, we generally think of piety or spirituality or morality, generally all three. Yeah. Okay. But that's not really what's going on. And again, we have chapters on this, both, I think, in the Torah book and in the Israelite conquest book. Um, In Leviticus 19.2, most people's translations say, be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Uh, but that sounds like it's an imperative, be holy. And yeah. the Hebrew verb is not an imperative. It's an indicative. And therefore, it should be translated, you are holy. Mm. Because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Wow. Uh, Israel is holy because God said they are. Right. They, can't, they can't earn it. They can't pursue it. They can't gain it. They can't lose it. Uh, they are holy because God said they were. It's sort Mm. of like justification in the New Testament—something you can't gain or lose. It's a gift of God, right? Uh, We're justified because He said we are. Yeah. And so holiness is similar, and that basically Mm. means that God has folded Israel into His own identity. Mm. He has identified Himself with them; they are His people, and He has identified identified them with Him, and He is their God. And you see that refrain all over the place in the Old Testament, I will be your people and you I um, mean you will be my people and I will be your God. And so uh, that is that is Israel's holy status. He made them holy by making a covenant with them and by interlacing his identity with theirs. That means everything they do reflects on him. Mm. And therefore he wants them to give him due honor, and respect, and live as his people. That means they can live out their holy status well, or, as often happened, they lived out their holy status abominably, Mm. and really did not reflect his identity in what they were doing. Yeah. So, in that sense, holiness is their identity and their status. It's not their piety or their morality. Certainly immoral behavior could be contradictory to their holy status. Mm. Impious or inappropriate uh, ritual could be conflicting with their holy status. Mm. So it's sort of like, you know, my, my children. Um, you know they are identified with me, and I am identified with them. And therefore, what what I do makes a difference for them. What they do makes a difference for me. But mm. they have that status; they have not earned it or gained it, and they can't lose it. They are my sons and daughters. Wow, and that doesn't change. And they were born into it. Of course, Israel wow. wasn't born into it; they were chosen into it. But uh, it's. But yet, I. Ex- I would hope for them to live in such a way that would honor the identity that we share as family.
1: Yeah, that, that, is, that is fantastic, because I think so many times, um, you know, as a new covenant believer, we have a, such a disconnect when we read the Old Testament because we read it and we say, OK, well, here's. Here's a a list of rules they follow, and 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 therefore that makes them righteous. And you know everything you said makes so much sense because we we realize that you know salvation is a free free gift. Um, so I think you've you've answered this, but I want to ask it. Um, maybe you can give some more clarity on that because we think of it as as Torah as a way of reaching salvation. Uh, Is that the case?
0: Absolutely not. Uh, The Torah has nothing to do with being saved. It has nothing to do with Um, saving them from their sins. Hebrews says it clearly, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. Mm, And the covenant did not take away their sins. As a matter of fact, an ancient Israelite would never have even thought that they needed to be saved from sins or that they could be saved from sins. They knew they sinned, uh, but the idea of being saved from sins, it's certainly not what the sacrificial system did. Mm. And it's not something that they looked for. They did not have any hope of heaven no expectation of heaven, so they weren't thinking of kind of dealing with their sins in a uh, permanent fashion. Uh, Mm. The sacrificial system allowed them to be in relationship with God. It did Mm. so because it gave them an opportunity to make petitions before him, the burnt offering, to give him gifts of thanks, uh, the thank offerings, and uh, also to Um, sanitize his presence. Uh, That's what the sin offering and guilt offering do. You'll notice that they are focused on the presence of God, not so much Mm. on the person. And so the the blood was a a ritual detergent that Mm. wiped away their offense from God's presence. Mm. Again, so that they wouldn't be desecrating his presence.
1: Those sacrifices
0: didn't take away the people's sins. And Hebrews tells us as much. There Mm. was Mm -hmm. no no uh, procedure for taking away their sins and certainly not for saving them from their sins. The covenant allowed them to be in relationship with God and with the idea that he was going to be dwelling among them. Mm. Tabernacle and temple are the significant target points for covenant. Mm. So he's going to dwell among them. And be in relationship with them. That's what had been lost at Eden. But now yeah. God is reestablishing. He's, um, he's giving an initiative that's going to allow him to be in relationship with people and dwelling among them. And he does that through Israel. And it's called the covenant. It was never yeah. intended to be a means of salvation. Torah was not. Covenant was not. Israel had no such ideas
1: yeah. I think that's so fantastic because, you know, we, for me, I, I read that scripture in Hebrews and in my mind, I'm thinking, well, at the time, you know, like, like we have new revelation. So I think, and I'm thinking that oh, at the time they were probably thinking that this, these sacrifices was a way of cleansing them of their sins. And now as a newcomer now you know, we, we just know better, we have new revelation, <laughs> but, but really, um, I love it because it it definitely breaks down that wall we put up sometimes between the new and the old uh, Testament, where we kind of see a a different God, where we have one that is law rules, and now we are all all grace and mercy. um, Which really, it's it's a construct that we sort of design by reading the Scripture in this way. Um, When we when we see okay, well, this is how God dealt with them, which is totally different than how God dealt with us. But what you're describing now really um, it's, it's the same covenant that's, that's been strengthened, I mean, we call it New covenant, like it's something totally new and different. Um, but it's, it's really the, the, the same God uh, that, that we relate to today. And um, I think that's really helpful when when looking at those scriptures, to, to thinking of it in that way, um, and we see all that throughout Scripture, where God has mercy for His name's sake, or He'll execute judgment for His name's sake. And uh, so, I, I love, I love that you you brought clarity on that. So,
0: both the old and the new covenants are based on the same premises. That is, relationship with God and God's presence. Yeah. Okay, so, the covenant in the Old Testament. Was made to establish that he was in relationship with them by virtue of the covenant, and because of the covenant, then he is dwelling among them. Okay, the new covenant is still based on a relationship with God, which is now made available through the blood of Christ at a, at a whole new level, mm-hmm. and with the idea of uh, God's presence, which they experienced in the incarnation, but we all experience in. The Holy Spirit's indwelling. Pentecost extended throughout the history of the church. And yeah. so still the new covenant puts us in relationship with God through Christ and enjoying the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. Old covenant, new covenant have those same elements that drive them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Um, awesome. So I want to get into some more of those examples. And we talked about slavery. Um I want to talk about uh, patriarchy. Now, you, you once again, you kind of already spoken to this a, a bit, um, but we see it, uh, you know, with, within their cult, culture, and we sort of, we certainly, uh, I feel like, for the for a large part, uh, apply it um, to to our our lives today. So, you know, what what can we really say about what the Torah says about patriarchy?
0: It doesn't really say anything beyond description. That is, God was speaking into a culture that was by definition and by nature patriarchal. And therefore, he's telling them how they should operate within their patriarchal society. He does not dictate that a patriarchal society is the best and only way, or the ideal way. Rather, he he accommodates their culture yeah. Here they are in a patriarchal culture. And so this is, this is how you proceed. So it's not an endorsement of patriarchy. It's not as if it fails to recognize the flaws of patriarchy. It's not telling us all that every culture has to be patriarchal. It's just communicating into the culture that the Israelites were part of. Yeah, He couldn't, he couldn't tell them not to be patriarchal. Any more than he could tell them to Google something. It just wasn't in their culture. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. Well, that's really helpful because that's certainly one of those things where where we read it as the ideal. And and, and we, in in some cases, I I say we, is just, you know, you hear this, you know, as as being something that uh, we need to model or that's been modeled for us. Uh, What about capital punishment?
0: Similar kinds of things. Again, that's speaking into the culture of the ancient world. You can find it in the legal collections of Hammurabi and many others. Uh, Capital punishment was uh, how they thought about those issues. Uh, Just because they have those sensibilities doesn't mean that we need to. Uh, they're in a very different kind of situation. They have no forensics. They have uh, no ability to uh, figure out issues of guilt uh, in many cases that we do have. You know, mm-hmm. We have DNA testing. We have fingerprints. We have all kinds of ways of developing forensic information that yeah. puts us in a different kind of situation. For them, lots of cases came down to swearing in the name of God that you were telling the truth. No evidence there, just a sworn oath, uh, yeah. and we realize that that can be that that can be violated. Um, so, uh, so again, we have to recognize that aspect as something which is part of ancient culture, and God speaks into ancient culture. Uh, so we can't devise our own legislative strategies and our own. Uh, our own approaches uh, to judgment and punishment um, as they did. But also they didn't have prisons. They had jails Mm. uh, as someone was awaiting trial, but their whole judicial system had no possibility for long-term incarceration. Wow, yeah. So again, a very different society, a very different structure. And maybe we think that long-term incarceration is an improvement. Maybe we think that it's not. Uh, but the fact is the Bible has nothing to say about it. And I should say, that's, that's part of the problem. The problem is that we go to the Bible, whether it's Torah or whatever it might be, with the idea that we're going to take a modern question yeah. and devise a biblical answer. Yeah. And in most cases, when we do that, what we are, we're either proof texting, dragging things out of context in which people on both sides of the issue, both are commandeering biblical passages, right? Or we are treating the texts in ways that does not respect the fact that they are ancient texts in an ancient context. Mm. In other words, we're treating the Bible as if it is an answer book. whether that's science or morality or culture or history. When we start treating the Bible as an answer book, we've got a problem because hermeneutically, you can't pull that off consistently.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, there's so much truth in what you're saying, but it's at the same time, so offensive because, um, it, it's, it's touchy. I mean, to, to, you know, we, we want the Bible to be an answer book and I can't tell you how many times I've heard of, what does the Bible have to say about this? You know, here's the biblical answer to this. Um, you know, if, if we know that this is God's truth, it, it's, it's something where we, we feel like we should be able to, to find the answer. Um, is there anything wrong with, with asking that, that question of, you know, what does the Bible have to say about this certain topic?
0: Well, see, that's different. It's one thing to say, what does the Bible have to say? And thinking about it in hermeneutically appropriate ways, what does that material contribute to our discussion? Mm. But if we're not careful, it easily becomes the biblical view of nutrition, the biblical view of dating, the biblical view of social media, the biblical view of who knows what.
1: And yeah, the Bible yeah.
0: doesn't have views on those things
1: yeah yeah wow and, and, and that's such a good point uh, <laughs> um, yeah, and it's like you said, you know we, we can look to it there and you know sometimes you may walk away and say that well there there is no no view um, now and that's
0: a see that's a mistake about what we think the Bible is and what it's supposed to do and yeah. it goes back to that. It goes back to our misconception about what the Bible is and how it works. And that's what needs to be adjusted.
1: Is there a way to get like an indirect, you know, you said social media, right? Is there a way to get, obviously we can't turn to a passage and, and, you know, anything about Facebook, right? But is there a way to get an indirect message as far as how, you know, to to be on social media, even though there's not a direct message? I know it's just, it's sort of a slippery slope, but I guess if we could just go there to to give an an example, um, you know, how how would you answer that question? Just by saying there's nothing to say about it.
0: Well, there's nothing to say about it. Certainly there is information that should help us think through it. For instance, what kind of people does God want us to be? Yeah. Does God want us to be people that, um, for instance, Uh, Go on the internet with all sorts of our own personal agendas, whether it has to do with bashing other people or making ourselves look different than what we really are, or what, 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 you know, Mm. what are you doing with social media? Uh, Mm. Are you being the kind of person God wants you to be? And Mm. it's not like you can turn to a passage and say, well, when it comes to social media, God wants me to be X. No, he can't do that. Okay. But the fact is, the Bible is not about us. The Bible is about God. Yeah, The Bible is revealing God's plans and purposes. And we're supposed to get on board with his plans and purposes. Mm. Uh, So it's not about us. And so often when we treat it as an answer book, we're making it be about what's going to give me the best leg up. What's going to give me the best advantage? What's going to give me the best chance to gain God's approval? What's going to give me, 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 me? It's not about me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Uh, you know, my, my pastor has talked about issues of, of conscience, and we, we we can, as you mentioned, we can look at biblical passage to support you know our our, our own you know interpretation of, of, of a modern issue. And there's people on both sides that can do that, and then we can end up being argumentative and being divisive. And uh, I think it's important if we, you know, if we approach it this way, we can say okay. It is possible for you to live out your conviction biblically in this direction, and that looked totally different than, than what I'm doing. Knowing that we don't necessarily have a, a, a clear right or wrong for a, a certain issue, um, is that kind of a, a, a correct understanding?
0: Sometimes there are a couple different possible directions. Yeah, that each could be carried out. Um, legitimately as people of god
1: yeah wow what a concept yeah yeah
0: and (laughs) uh you know but you know for instance if if you go to the to the blogosphere and just try to take people down you know show Mm. how stupid they are and insult them and uh, i'm Mm. sorry are are we being christians now (laughs)
1: Let's,
0: let's try to do it differently
1: yeah yeah there we go wow i love that um i think that's super helpful and and hopefully um you know we can take that to heart um because with social media i think it's real easy as you mentioned to kind of just fire off like that and i I think it's helpful to to be more more loving and understanding if if we have this greater understanding that that like you said we we're not looking at the bible as as the the answer book um So I've got maybe a couple other things that I just, uh, those little more like nitty gritty examples I want to get into. And then, um, and that'll be probably about it. But uh, so tattoos, does the Bible say anything about tattoos?
0: Well, sure. There's a verse that mentions tattoos, but, but same answer. We've got our own ideas of what tattoos are and how they serve in society and what they represent. And uh, we've moved in society from a place where tattoos meant one thing back in the fifties and mean something very different in today's world. Um, And uh, tattoos meant something very different in the ancient world. And so you can't go to a biblical verse in the Torah about not having tattoos unless you understand what a tattoo stood for in the ancient world. And it's not the same thing as what it stands for in our world, either the fifties or the, the modern day so um, again that's a place where you can't talk about a biblical view of tattoos until you talk about what it what is a tattoo and i don't mean what it is like markings of ink under the skin i mean what does it represent what place does it have in society so you have to do the work in the ancient culture first
1: yeah this might be my my last um specific question i guess uh, taking the Lord's name in vain, you know, I, I've always taken that to mean, you know, I, I shouldn't, you know, say, oh, God, you know, out of anger or something like that. Is that a, a right way of understanding, taking the Lord's name in vain?
0: No. Um, it That does, by the way, you know, lots of times these days we talk about it either in connection to profanity or mm. in terms to taking an oath. That is swearing in the name of God that you do something and then you don't. Yeah. Both of those are situations where God's name is treated as something which has no power, which is mm-hmm. superfluous, which can be safely ignored, uh, or you don't even make a big thing about it. So you say OMG in your texts, and you don't really mean anything by it. Okay, Both right. of those then are situations where God's name is treated as if it does not have power. The problem in the ancient world was the opposite. When they recognized that the name of God had power, and they wanted to harness that power and exploit Mm. that power for their own benefits and advantages. Mm. And so they would take up the name of the Lord in vain, meaning in their vain pursuits for their own objectives. Mm because they recognize that it does have power, Mm, rather than treating it as if it doesn't. In that way, when that's, in my mind, one of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, that we most often violate today. Yeah. Because anytime we say, well, God told me to do this, or God told me it's, it's his will for our church to do this. Or mm. the Bible says this. Any of those things, we're speaking in the name of God, mm. treating his name, his word, as thing of power, which it is, but using it for our own opinions and advantages. Wow. That's the vanity. That's in vain. So when mm-hmm. we speak on God's behalf or speak on the Bible's behalf and all we're doing is speaking our own opinions and trying to give it the the appeal to authority by mm-hmm. saying this is what God says mm-hmm. that has the danger of being a violation of the third commandment.
1: Wow, yeah. Yeah. It's funny as you were describing that, i kind of thought, Oh, well, we don't do that. But then, um, we do that all the whole time. Yeah. You want to use God as, as the excuse. Uh, God told me not to do this. Um, wow. Um, so I want to invite you to kind of, um, well, I want to thank you so much. This has been really, really enlightening. Um, I'd love to have you back on. Um, like I said, I'm going to be reading some more of your, more of your things, but, uh, um, I want to invite you to kind of say anything else um, uh, about this subject um, and then let people know uh, where they can pick up your books and how to get in touch with you. Sure.
0: Lots of times when people come at the text uh, and start to listen to what I'm suggesting, um, they, they'll recognize that this means a very significant change in how they read scripture. Yeah. Um, Because you can't take each law and say, what does that mean for me? You can't take each narrative and say, you know, how do I be that kind of person or not be that kind of person or um, how I should share my lunch? uh, Like the little boy, people are used to taking every bit of scripture, all the little bits, even half verses Mm. and pulling them out and dropping them down into what I call the me box. Okay. Okay. Um, they want to, they want the Bible to affect their lives. That's great. But they think that they can do that by kind of using each narrative and each law as a sponge. They can can squeeze out something that will tell them how to have success in life or how to prosper, how to be in God's favor, or um, how to know a way forward. Right. And so they're trying to squeeze each. And whether it's a narrative or a Psalm or a proverb or a prophecy or Uh, or a legal saying that that's what they're trying to get. They think that the Bible is meant to address directly into a specific issue in their lives. You probably recognize that approach. It's one that most Christians use. And, you know, I call it, you know, kind of dropping out the pieces into the me box. Sure. I propose a different way. I propose that the Bible's intent, that the idea that God has communicated through these authors, is that we, both they and we as his people, come to a better understanding of his plans and purposes. He is interacting with the world, he is engaging with the world he has created, with the people he has created. He has plans and purposes that he is working out in. Innumerable ways and in unimaginable ways and in sometimes inconceivable ways, but he's working them out. And this is his story. And in his story, he is showing us his plans and purposes. So instead of pulling out little bits and dropping them into the me box, what we ought to be doing is taking all of those pieces, prophets, narratives, gospels, all those pieces, and bringing them up into the plans and purposes box. How do each of these pieces help me to understand God's story and God's plans and purposes better? Mm. And that becomes a a more fully developed idea. And thats it's only then that we move it to us. In other words, now, understanding God's story and God's plans and purposes, what kind of person am I supposed to be? How can I respond to the situations I face? It's not sure. that the Bible has give me an answer to that. The Bible is helped me understand God's story and God's plans and purposes. And my job is to be a participant in those. Yeah. And be working alongside God for his agenda, not trying to, in, uh, to recruit God to my agenda. Yeah. And so it's a different way of approaching text. It still says every part's important, but it's important course, yeah. in a different way and for a different reason. Um, I've been told about, uh, as an example, I've been told about facial recognition programs. Mm -hmm. The more you use them, the better they are. So uh, the computer I'm using now has facial recognition for me to open up the computer. And every time it does that, it refines and perfects. Um, And uh, so its ability to recognize me becomes better and better. And it wouldn't matter if I took my glasses off or if I shaved my head or if I painted my face blue, Um, it would still be able to, the more it has worked, the more it will recognize my face. That's Mm. what we're doing when we're reading scripture. Uh, We're encountering the face of God. Mm. And the more we dip into scripture and the more we see Mm. his face and his plans and purposes and how he works, the more that happens, the more we're going to be able to recognize him
1: in our Mm -hmm. lives,
0: in our world, in the text, in history, and the more we'll be able to not be thrown off by things that seem a little different. Boy, why is God doing that? Okay, that's not going to throw off my whole view of of God now because I've got the whole thing of his plans and purposes. And so in that Mm -hmm. sense, uh, I'm improving my facial recognition skills, my facial recognition of God every time I read the text.
1: Yeah, we're learning wisdom, and he's kind of
0: what you're saying, right? What kind of person he wants us to be, because our job is to be participants, reflecting him, our identity in him, and showing us to be his people by honoring his name in the world. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, mm. right? We are supposed to be reflecting the mm. sacredness of His name and His person. Mm. Your kingdom come, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. Mm. Right. So the Lord's prayer gave us this focus.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, fantastic. When you're when you're talking, I my mind immediately went to. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with with U version. They have a Bible app, real popular. Um, And you can get on there and from the homepage, you can look up devotionals and they've got this thing to where, boy, I mean, you, you can pick any, any topic you want, um, and create a devotional, um, based off of whatever you want. And I don't think there's anything necessarily, I'm not trying to like bash that, but just the overall concept of being able to see, okay, here's what I, what I'm trying to, it's also me centric, um, that. It, it's definitely just approaching the Bible in, in a totally different way than what you're, what you're saying. And, um, I think this is, uh, just so helpful. So once again, uh, thank you so much, um, for, for, for coming on. I think, uh, you were, um, able to like really clearly, uh, you know, kind of state, um, state some things. And, uh, I think hopefully, uh, help people kind of view, scripture in a different way, and, and hopefully they can get your resources that I'll, I'll link in, in, the, in the show notes. Um, but go ahead and speak a little bit to that now as far as, you know, where people can can get your books and get in touch with you.
0: Okay. Of course, everything's available on Amazon, but also through the publishers. Um, I don't have my own web page except through Wheaton College where I teach, and so that's how they would uh, get, get to me there. Um, the... You know, we mentioned the Lost World series. We mentioned the background commentaries and the background study Bible. Uh, I've got a book called Old Testament Theology for Christians. Mm -hmm. And it talks about these ways in which the Old Testament is embedded in the ancient context, but yet has new information that God gives them that draws them out of that. And so some of those issues are dealt with there. If people are interested in the ancient world, per se... I have a book called Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament, uh, which really deals more with the similarities between Israel and the ancient world, but it deals with some differences as well. Uh, So those are some of the different books that people can get. Of course, I've got general reference things like an Old Testament survey uh, and things of that sort that people can uh, can get as well. I mentioned the Bible Story Handbook, and I think that's uh, often a good starting place for people. Uh, to start, um, start thinking through these issues to see if they yeah. need to make some adjustments. Awesome. And of course, this uh, book, the uh, the best practices for faithful interpretation. That illustration of the me box and God's plans and purposes that's that's part of that book as well. And I hope that that'll be out oh in about a year.
1: Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, well, uh, well, thank you so much once again. Um, I thought thought this was great. Uh, You can close this out in prayer?
0: Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, Lord, thanks for this chance to just talk about you and your word and uh, to try to work together to remind ourselves of ways that we can be faithful interpreters. I thank you for Samuel's ministry uh, through his podcast, and I pray that uh, many people will be uh, reached through this and that it will be able to influence uh, their thinking. And so we pray that you'll help us to be faithful interpreters, help us to be faithful people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. hope you enjoyed. If you did, make sure to share this with somebody you know. Like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on your favorite podcasting app, leave us a rating and review. You can email me at theweirdchristianpodcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.